Hi, my name is Bridget, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning. Um, We're on at Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 22, and that is on page 888 of your Black Bibles. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me.' For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained um, hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region and of the the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. 
While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, we long for light in a dark world, and we long for hope in a hopeless world, and so we come before you today expecting that you will speak to us, shine brightly through your word and by your spirit, and we ask that for Jesus' sake, amen. So is God there, does God care, and is God able? Is God there, does God care, and is God able? I think those three questions are questions that every single person in this room today will have asked at some point in their life. Is God there? Does he exist? And if he is there, does he know me personally? Does God care? Is he kind? Is he compassionate? Does he actually know my particular pain at this moment in time? And is God able? Is God powerful enough to actually deal with the situation and change my life for good? Is God there? Does God care? And is God able? See, if God is not there, if God does not exist, then this is how the world works. It's called the survival of the fittest. If God is not there, it's always the powerful people who always win. And so go for power, go for broke, trample on people, live a good life because God is not there. And if God is not there, what do you do in those tough times? How do you cope? Stiff up a lip, suck it up, try harder. You've got to believe there is a God and he is present and he is there. It's all well and good God being there, but does he really care for you? Is God just distant from you? Or does he really know your pain? Does he feel your pain? Does he love you and does he care for you? And it's lovely and beautiful and nice if God cares for you. But if God is not able to actually help you, what's the point of having a a God who's there and cares? He's got to have the power. He's got to have the authority. He's got to do something about it, hasn't he? See how those three questions are all intertwined? And I can guarantee you that in the darkest days of your life, even the the most staunch atheist begins to say, is God there, does God care, and is God able? Because here's the reality for most of us. Most of us go through life, we breeze through life day by day in the good times, and we just take God's presence for granted, God's care for granted, and God's power for granted. But in your darkest of days, you've got to know that God is there and God cares And God is powerful. God is able. 
Well, I'm here today from Luke chapter 8 to say that Jesus shouts to you this morning, I am there and I do care and I am able. In this beautiful chapter, Jesus meets four groups of people and they're all very different. You've got his Jewish male disciples in the boat. They're on the inside. You've got this demon-possessed man who's totally outcast by society. You've got this powerful synagogue ruler called Jairus who's upright and respectable and you've got a desperate, bleeding woman. And they're all very different. But deep down, they've got the same problem, the same problem that you've got and I've got. They're all in desperate need. They're all in desperate need and they come asking God, are you there and do you care? And in this chapter, Jesus demonstrates remarkable power, power over nature, power over evil, power over death, power over disease. And he's saying, I am able and I do care. What I love about this chapter is that he doesn't just bring healing, he brings restoration, complete restoration. So we're going to walk through the text and you're going to see the same things again and again and again. A desperate need, a remarkable power, a complete restoration. A desperate need, a remarkable power, a complete restoration. So let's do it. Jesus' power over nature. The need is obvious. His disciples are drowning. They are facing death. And they're helpless. One day Jesus said to his disciples, verse 22, verse 22, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they all got into this one boat and they set out. But as they sailed, Jesus took a nap. And this whirlwind, this squall came down and the waves are lapping over the boat. And the boat is starting to be swamped with the water. And even the seasoned sailors are scared. They're in massive, massive danger. That's the need. Their lives are at risk. Now what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. And they're thinking, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care for us? The disciples went, verse 24, and woke up Jesus saying, Master, Master, there's an urgency there, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Don't you care if we drown, Mark's Gospel says? Jesus, how can you be so peaceful? Don't you care about us? This is my hour of need. Where are you, Jesus? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever asked that in life, that moment of crisis, that moment of desperation? Jesus, don't you care for us? That's their question. Of course he cares. He has the power to do something about it. Jesus is powerful enough to stand up and to rebuke the wind, rebuke the waters, and the storm is stilled. Complete calm. Sea as smooth as glass sea. It's miraculous. Now, we don't have that power, do we? But Jesus does. Can you imagine going into that storm 10 days ago on that Wednesday, walking out your front door saying, Stop rain! You have no power over nature, but Jesus does. That's how powerful he is. And the disciples asked down in verse 25, Who is this? You've got to know that question. Who is this man who commands the winds and the waves and they obey him? If you know your Bible, it's only God controls the weather. 
Who is this man who forgives sins and calm seas and has a power over nature? Who is he? He's God. What I love about this story, he doesn't just have power, he actually cares. He cares for their lives, he cares for their safety. He brings calm to the chaos, he brings order to disorder, he brings peace to panic. That's what Jesus always does with us. That's why he rebukes the disciples in verse 25. Where is your faith, he says. Don't you believe that I have power over nature? Don't you believe that I care for you? Where's your faith? Let me ask you that question this morning. Where is your faith? Do you really believe that God has complete control over all things? Do you believe he has control over your life? I don't know about you, but I often turn to anything and anybody rather than Jesus in my moment, moment of panic. That great hymn, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what pain we needless bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We don't go to Jesus, the one who has power over all things. Jesus has power over nature. He has power over evil because evil is real. Evil destroys people and evil messes up our world. Can you imagine being a disciple at this moment where the sea is calm and they're sailing to shore and they spot this, this deserted place at sigh of relief. We're safe and there's no crowds around and then suddenly this mad demon-possessed man appears. He's gripped by evil. Let me be clear about this, this demoniac. He once lived a normal life. He is human. But Satan has got hold of this man. This is evil beyond our imagination, I think. This is a demon-possessed man who is hardly human. He is living like an animal. He wears no clothes. He has no house to live in, verse 27. He lives amongst the tomb. He lives amongst the dead. That's how desperate he is. He has no life. And he's dangerous. We're told in verse 29 that he is chained hand and foot. But he keeps breaking those chains because he's so strong. He's like a beast. Because that's what Satan does. He takes hold of people. And when evil grabs hold of you, he turns humanity into beast-like people. And I know we've got lots of questions about demon possession today. And there are churches that seem to find a demon in every situation. But I wonder whether we actually downplay the role of evil and downplay the role of Satan and deny demon possession. One of Satan's greatest weapons is to make us think that evil does not exist and he's not in control of that. This man is not just demon possessed, he has several demons. Verse 30, what is your name? Jesus says, legion, he says, because many demons have gone into him. Now, do you see his desperate need? He is deranged, he is deserted, he is dangerous, and he is desperate. And he comes to Jesus, he does the right thing, verse 28. He comes to Jesus and falls at his feet, but he's not, he's not coming to worship Jesus. He's coming out of fear. He cries out, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. I love the irony of this verse. I love this. The demons are fearful of God's presence. 
the disciples didn't even realize God was present with them. The demons know who Jesus is. The disciples who should have known don't get it. What these demons are fearful, what, what evil is most fearful of is goodness. I hope you know that. The way to combat evil in life is always through goodness. You don't combat evil with evil, you combat evil through goodness. And when these demons are face to face with goodness in the person of Jesus Christ, they are terrified. Because they understand that Jesus has power over evil and has power over the evil one. And so these demons go into these pigs and the pigs are drowned. Again, there's an irony there. The disciples are not drowned, but the demons are drowned. He has remarkable power. He says, just get out of them. Come out. Another word, he has power over evil. Only once in my life have I seen something quite as strange as this, but I have seen it. But I've also seen men and women who have been gripped by evil. And you're gripped by addictions or you are gripped by torment or you're gripped by hatred or you're gripped by bitterness and evil is at work in you and you need to be set free from that. And you're set free in the name of Jesus because he can deliver you from evil. He can deliver you from the evil one. I will share one story of demon possession because it's quite powerful. True story. I met the man as I was at a conference and he stood in my path. A handsome young man, 27 years of age, dressed in an army uniform. I've been told to talk to you, he said. His manner was strange and threatening. His voice was flat and colorless. His eyes looked cold and empty. I felt fear. I must tell you something, he said. I can't look at you. With that, he turned to the wall and told me the most bizarre story I'd ever heard. He'd been a worshiper and priest of Satan for 17 years. He was visited by demons and driven to unspeakable acts of evil. He hated God and hated Christ and hated talking to me. But he felt compelled. After two hours, he turned to me and said, aren't you afraid of me? Don't you know I can kill you? And with supernatural calmness, I looked into those enraged face and those eyes and said, no, you cannot. For greater is Christ who's in me than Satan who's in you. And instantly he screamed a hideous high-pitched scream threw up his arms, fell to the floor in uncontrollable rage. God, what do I do, I said. I felt helpless. So I prayed, Lord Jesus, deliver this man from Satan. Lord Jesus, deliver this man from Satan. I didn't know what to do, but I knew the name of Jesus always rang the death knell to demons. After what seemed like an eternity, his body began to relax. I urged him to speak the name of the Lord Jesus, but each time he grabbed his throat as though he couldn't speak. And I knelt before him and said, Lord Jesus, release this man's tongue that he may speak your name. And he said the words, Lord Jesus. And with those words, he slumped to the floor unconscious. But he was relaxed, he was at peace. He opened his eyes and said, Lord Jesus. He got up completely and utterly transformed. Jesus has the power to do that, you know. Not just over the demon-possessed, but over evil in general, and evil in your life. And maybe you are here this morning, you need to be set free, set free from something that has grabbed you and gripped you and, and caused you to be a prisoner. It might be an addiction, it might be a hatred, it might be a bitterness that you need to be freed from. 
And Jesus has the power to do that. And what I get I love is that he not just drives out the demons, he completely restores the man. He's made whole again. Verse 35, when they came to Jesus, they found the man dressed and in his right mind. Do you see that? This man who was once possessed is now in his right mind. He's got restored sanity, restored dignity, and restored humanity, because that's what Jesus does. He restores our humanity. Isn't Jesus amazing? He's so good. And you'd think that when people see this transformation, they'll be amazed at Jesus, but they never are. These people, verse 35, they are fearful. When they see a man transformed, they're afraid. They're afraid of the power of Jesus to, to drive out evil. Verse 37 again, they're overcome with fear. So I don't get that. I've seen many, many, many lives utterly transformed by the gospel. Men and women who have come to know Jesus Christ and found healing and found restoration and found dignity and found worth and their friends and family rather than saying, wow, praise God. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Why is that? Here's why. The Bible tells you because light comes into the world and people hate light and love darkness. A lot of our world love evil because Satan's having a field day. Jesus comes to drive out the evil and to bring you peace and restoration and wholeness and dignity and to set you free. Jesus has power over evil and power over disease and power over death. We meet two more people and they're both in desperate need. They are so different You've got Jairus in verse 40 who is a, a man of authority, a man of power, a man of influence and you've got this bleeding woman who's almost a nobody. But they're both in need because Jairus' daughter is ill. She's 12 years old, verse 42, and she's so critically ill she's almost dying. He is so desperate, isn't he? I hope you know that there are times in everyone's life where all your money in the world, all your authority and all your power cannot help you. And what you need is Jesus. So Jairus does the right thing. He comes to Jesus. He comes asking for help, asking for healing, pleading. But Jesus kind of gets distracted. I wonder how Jairus felt towards this bleeding woman. You ever been in those desperate situations where you're desperate to get somewhere? I remember driving Rach to the hospital when uh, Nathaniel was uh, being born, premature labor. And we're desperate to get to the hospital. And you know when you're desperate, it seems like every traffic light is against you, everything is red. And then you get these Honda drivers, no offense to Honda drivers, but these Honda drivers who are always driving slowly or doing a right-hand turn and taking too long. Get out of my way, we're desperate. That is how Jairus would have felt. Get out of his way. We are desperate. My daughter is dying. But Jesus stops. And he heals this woman. Who without being offensive is a nobody in the world's eyes. She is a nobody. We're told in verse 42 she's been bleeding. She's had a menstrual cycle constantly for 12 years. That's interesting. Exactly the same length of years that this girl has been alive. They're both 12. 
And just so you get it, she would be outcast from society. She cannot go into public. She certainly can't do anything remotely religious. And she's tried everything, doctors and witch doctors and Dr. Gu, but no one could heal her, verse 43. But she knows that Jesus can heal her. And so she comes to Jesus. She pushes her way through the crowd, a bit like the crowds on New Year's Eve at Bradfield Park. She pushes her way through, and she just manages to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. And you see verse 44? The power of Jesus, immediately her bleeding stopped. Twelve years of bleeding stopped like that. That's how powerful Jesus is. Incredible power. And he could have stopped there. And Jesus could have gone on his way. And this woman could have got away with stealing a heel from Jesus. But here's the big point. Jesus doesn't just want to heal this woman. He wants to love her and he wants to know her and call her his child. That's why he stops and says, who touched me? Now Jesus knows everything, does he? So he knows who touched her. And you imagine verse 45, Peter rolling his eyes, thinking, Master, there's so many people here. What do you mean who touched you? We have no idea. It's like standing in a shower thinking, which drop of water touched my nose? It's a ridiculous question. Who touched me? But Jesus wants this woman not just to be healed, but to know him. See, she's crept up behind Jesus, hasn't she? Because she sees herself as being unworthy. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to stand before me. I want to see you face to face. I want to say to you these amazing words, verse 48, daughter. Daughter, he calls her. I wonder when the last time anyone called her daughter was. Daughter, you're my child. Your faith has healed you. Your trust in me has healed you. You are well. And there's amazing words, go in peace. Woman, he says, you have no guilt. That You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to fear because you now belong to me. Isn't that beautiful? See, Jesus restores her dignity. And Jesus restores her worth. He doesn't just want to fix a problem. He wants to know her personally. And I hope you've experienced that from Jesus. He's not just a miracle maker who just fixes your problems. He wants to know you personally. I want to make sure here this morning, if you're a Christian, that you know that you have worth and that you know that you have dignity and you know that you have value because Jesus loves you. And the world might say to you that you, should, you have no worth or you should feel ashamed or you should feel guilty or you should feel undirty. And Christians might make you feel guilty and dirty and unclean because we're often good at that. But Jesus does not see you like that. If you come to him in faith, he has saved you, he has healed you, he calls you his child, and he says to you, you have worth and you have value. But what is amazing news for this woman is terrible news for Jairus. Because by being delayed, his daughter is dead, verse 49. Don't bother the teacher anymore. They say it's pointless because there's no life in her. There's no hope. There's no point. She is dead. There's no way forward. And you notice how, how Jairus' need has shifted? It's one thing to have a sick daughter. It's another thing to have a dead daughter. 
There is nothing more despairing or nothing more desperate than your child dying. But Jesus says what could seem to be insensitive words. Verse 50. He says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Just believe. It sounds a bit trite. Just have faith and she will be healed. And you want to say, but she's dead. It's not about a healing anymore. She's actually dead. Do you have power to heal the dead and bring life back to dead things? And the answer is yes, he does. See, Jesus is not just powerful over disease, he's powerful over death. The one thing in life that we're all most fearful of is death. But Christians don't fear death, do we? Because Jesus can raise the dead back to life. And I'm not just talking about on this earth, I'm talking about eternal life, life beyond the grave. You know, I think we sing about this a lot. We sing lines like, no guilt in life, no fear in death. But deep down, we all fear death, don't we? Or we sing about death, where is your sting? And you say, actually, there is a sting in death because the physical death is painful. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you believe that Jesus has the power over death, that death is not the end, that you will have a new life with a new body, a resurrection body for all eternity. And that's what this miracle is showing you, that that death is not the end. So the crowds are wailing and they are mourning. And Jesus turns to them in verse 52 and says, stop your wailing, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Now, I would not recommend that at a funeral service, saying to a coffin, she's just asleep. But Jesus can say that because he's talking about eternal life and eternal death. And just to show that, he, he goes into the room and he speaks to the child and we don't know how he said it. And look what he says to the girl. He's just called the woman daughter. And now he calls Jairus' his daughter, verse 54, my child. And again, do you see the relational language? You're my child. You belong to me. I love you, he's saying. Now get up. Come back to life. Can you imagine that miracle of seeing a dead person come back to life? But Jesus has the resurrection power and a life over death. I spent a few, a lot of time with a few people these last few weeks who are dying. And just seeing how people face death as a Christian is is, is so wonderful and so liberating. A lady with stage four cancer, and she has no fear. Absolute confidence. She knows where she's going. Watching my Auntie Betty die, she was my godmother. She was a Christian who prayed for me all her life. I wasn't a Christian when she died, but the way that she faced death actually had a profound impact on me because she had no fear in death. Jesus has, has power over death, and so we don't fear. And my question is still, why did Jesus delay? But you've got to believe that God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. He knows what he's doing. He knows when he's going to do it, and he knows why he's doing it. So four different people, all with a need, all seeing Jesus' power, and all being totally restored. 
I've got a simple question to finish. There's two responses in these chapters, and they're polar opposite responses. One is fear, and one is faith. So do you have fear, or do you have faith? The disciples were afraid. They had no faith. The demons were afraid. The crowd are afraid. The woman is afraid. Because when you're in the crisis of life, fear is one response, isn't it? Fear is a, is a normal human response because you are in desperate, desperate need. They were drowning. He's demon-possessed. They're, they're rightly fearful of that. But here's what fear really is. Fear is basically saying, God, I'm not sure you're there, and I'm not sure you care, and I'm not sure you're able. And, and fear is taking our lives into our own hands and saying, okay, God, I can fix this problem. So I'll do it my way, thank you very much. And fear is a horrible, horrible, horrible emotion where you are panicking because you're really doubting whether God is able. And here's the thing about the Christian faith. Faith drives out fear. It really does, you know. Faith drives out fear. If you believe in a God who is there, you believe in a God who cares, you believe in a God who is able in that moment of tragedy, in that moment of trial, in that moment of panic, you turn to Jesus and you hand it over to him. Say, I will trust you with this God. I can't fix it, but you can. Do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do you know how many times it comes in the Bible? 365 times. As a mathematician, I love that. You know, one for each day of the year. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Have faith. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And that is what Jesus says to you this morning. Believe in me, trust me. I have the power, I do care, I am there. So turn to Jesus. Someone said this, it's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another to believe God. It's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another to believe God. Please don't leave here this morning believing that God has the power and that God does care and that God is there. But leave it out there at a distance. You've got to personally believe in him that he's there for you and he cares for you and he's powerful in your life. Because when you do that, you live a life of faith and not a life of fear.